Hi, everybody. Go ahead and grab a seat. We're so glad that you are here today, particularly if you're new with us. Welcome. And if you grab a Bible, we're going to go to the book of Luke this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we will put everything uh, that we're quoting from the Bible up on the screen so you can follow along. Now, I'm not, I'm normally teaching in the other uh, room. Austin's normally in here. Thrilled to swap, but here's what I need from you guys. You need to look not bored. All right, now that, for some of you, that will require a lot of effort, and I understand that completely. For others of you, great. But if I can see you this closely, and I can talk to you this directly, then just looking interested would be a great gift. It's only for 30 minutes. It's only for 30 minutes, all right? Now, I'm so glad uh, you are here with us because we've been in um, a conversation out of the Gospel of Luke. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there are four different kind of biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've been in Luke for about a year, and uh, it'll take us a, a while longer to get through the rest of it because we've been kind of marinating in some of the teaching. We're in a section in the book of Luke where Jesus is teaching kind of his most offensive uh, most controversial stuff. He, he is, he's teaching about what life is like when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. He is the embodiment of God's will being done on earth. And what you end up seeing in Jesus' teaching is the inversion, the reversal of, of the world's values and priorities and valuating systems. And so Jesus is pronouncing blessing on people that are hungry and people that are poor. And he's uh, pronouncing curses on those that are rich and well-fed. I mean, it's just this incredible upside-down thing he's doing. And then he gets into a teaching, a, a, part, a part of the teaching we looked at a couple of uh, weeks ago, where uh, we're invited to love indiscriminately the way that God loves indiscriminately. And, and the reason that was such a big deal back then is social relationships in the first century were governed by reciprocity. If, if I did something for you, you owed me, and you would have to do something for me. Now, we, we do that in a small way today, right? If For those of you that do Christmas cards, if you get a Christmas card from somebody who's not on your list, you send them a Christmas card, right? Or even worse, if someone buys you a Christmas present that you didn't buy a Christmas present for, you go into your re-gift closet and get one, you know, very quickly for them. Some of you are guilty. You know who you are. What are you, what are you looking at here, baby? Or my wife is saying I raid her gift card collection. Yes, I do that all the time. Now, this is my wife, and if she's going to talk a lot during this message, it is it's going to take a while to get through it all. Um, so we'll see. We'll kind of see how that goes. The problem, the problem with teaching the Bible in front of your spouse, well, you can see the problem of teaching the Bible in front of your spouse, because every now and again, she'll just go, hey, didn't we talk about that one, Pastor? And, you know, it'll be like, oh, man, doggone it. So she's here. She's excited. Um, She's calling me out already. Now, that's too reactive. That's too interactive. No amening. Now, now, one of the things that happens is that, is that Jesus is simply pointing out what the Father God is like. The Father shows kindness to those that show kindness to Him and those that hate Him. The Father shows love to those who are His enemies as well as those who are His friends. And so, in that same way, He's inviting His disciples to break this reciprocity where, where you do things for people who can't pay you back, where you do things for people who can't lend back, or who, who can't be indebted to you. You're simply indiscriminate in the way that you love 
and you give. That's the Father. So to be the children of the Father, that's what you do. Now, there's one thing we looked at last week that, that quenches this kind of extravagant love. And then is this idea of judgment. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 37. We looked at this text last week as well. Uh, but this is such good stuff. So the thing that will quench this, this mercy, remember, the, this, the high point of the whole sermon that Jesus is giving is you are to be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The thing that quenches mercy more than anything else is judgment. And so, it's not a coincidence that we then read in chapter 6, verse 37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Now, this is talking about mercy and forgiveness. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, we poured into your lap. This isn't about how to get rich, as some would have you believe. This is, this is about, you can't out-generous God. Like he's, however it is that you find yourself blessing, giving, showing mercy to others, whatever, whatever small amount you do, God, God will blow it all away. In terms of what he will do for you. For whatever measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable, verse 39. Can the blind lead the blind, or will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye and pay no attention to the two by four in your own? How can you say to your brother or sister... Hey, brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye while you yourself fail to see the plank, the two-by-four, the beam in yours. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother or sister's eye. Now, it's so incredibly important that we understand what's being discussed here. The word for judge is the word krino. Say krino. Krino. Now, the word means to separate or to categorize, to distinguish. Now, It is used in a good sense in the Bible, and it's used in a bad sense in the Bible. Clearly, here, Jesus is condemning the bad sense of Crino. Now, notice, he says, do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn or you will be condemned. He's saying the same thing twice. So the kind of judgment that's being prohibited here is the separation of people, not the separation of actions. Okay, so the good kind of judgment we're going to look at this morning is the separation of actions or ways of living or whatever. That's totally appropriate in the church. What's being prohibited here is the move that we all naturally make from seeing someone's external behavior to assumptions about their identity or verdicts about their motives, right? Am I the only one that does this? That you, you, it, it's a short step from the crying infant in the plane to, well, they're just bad parents. It's a short step from the homeless uh, person that's there asking for money to, they're just lazy. Right? It's a, it's a, and we do this all the time. The kind of judgment that's being prohibited, the kind of crino that's being outlawed here, is the condemnation. It is the categorization of people into good and bad and right and wrong and sheep and goats and weeds and flowers. I mean, all of the ways that we want to assign people based on what we see on the outside. We want to make verdicts or conclusions or assumptions about their inside. That is what's being prohibited. But there is something left for the people of God to do. So if last week was an offense 
to those people that absolutely love giving themselves worth by looking at other people and saying, I'm glad I'm not like them, which is all of us. This week will be an offense to those of us that say, hey, don't judge at all. Because there is a place. And so I'm going to use the word discernment to talk about the good kind of judging. Judgment, I'm going to just reference the bad kind, but krino is used in two senses. The negative condemnation and assumptions and verdicts we make about each other, that's outlawed. We talked about it last week. This discernment idea, though, this is all throughout the text. So go, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 5. I'll give you one example where it's encouraged. And even when Jesus talks about the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and the plank in your own, that's still assuming that you're helping somebody remove the speck. It's just acknowledge that you've got a two-by-four in your own eye first, right? Okay. Yes? Yeah. No, okay. Hebrews. What? Oh, you were laughing? You were? Oh. See, I think I'm funny. No one else does. So it is very nice to have somebody else. Hebrews chapter 5. I'd better turn there. Now, this is, notice what the writer says here. He's writing to a church. We think this was actually something that was read out loud to the community. So the writer says, verse 11, we have much more to say about this, and we don't have time to get into what the this is, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand it. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers in all of this, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. It's like your infants, not mature. Anyone who still lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who, by constant use of God's word, have trained themselves to what? Distinguish good from evil. Now, the word distinguish is the word krino. So, one of those signs of maturity, according to this passage, is that you are able to sift and sort, separate good from evil. But notice, this isn't good people from evil people. This isn't from right people from wrong people. This isn't from people going to heaven, people frying in hell kind of judgment. This is the judgment of, there are certain ways of thinking and living and speaking that are congruent with the kingdom, and there are ways of thinking and living and speaking and being that are not congruent with the kingdom. And as a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, this kind of sifting and sorting is actually a good thing. So, on the negative side, Crino, we don't go from external to internal. Verdicts about motives, salvation status, worth, whatever. Right? That's God's job, as we talked about last week. What we do do, however, is that we are to sift and to sort. So, the bad crino is separating people. The good crino is separating things. Separating speech. Separating ways of behaving. So, it's encouraged here as a sign of maturity. Now, Instantly, though, we have to start qualifying what we mean by this because even the good kind of discernment is to be saved for certain contexts with certain people and done in certain ways. This isn't just an indiscriminate like, oh, you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you should never wear jeans to a church service kind of thing. That's wrong, first of all. But secondly, just an example. Now, See, that was a little, that was a little, ladies. That's a front, I mean, young man, look at you in the corner. 
How many dudes would kill to be you right now at the end of that row full of godly babes? Now, so the question is, where does this discernment, who is the object of this discernment? Go, if you would, to 1 Peter. Flip over a, a book or two to 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, I want to make sure uh, this next section is really clear, so stop me if I lose you. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter is writing, um, this section is about suffering in terms of being persecuted for your faith. And he has this line in here. He says, verse 16, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, bearing his name. And then notice, for it is time for judgment to begin with what? God's household, or the family of God, is how I always heard it. Now, Peter is bringing something forward from the Old Testament. When you become one of God's people, it doesn't make you immune from the kind of discerning process that we're talking about. In fact, you become the object of it. 613 laws worth in the Old Testament. Right There's a sense in which the good kind of crino that we're talking about is to be done among God's family. Flip over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to flesh this out in one other text, and then we'll talk about what it means exactly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, anybody who says, hey, I wish we were part of the early church. And, and there's this kind of overly idealized version of the early church. It would be totally cool to talk to the eyewitnesses who were there around Jesus, no question about it. But they were kind of jacked up in, in their own kind of way. Anybody who thinks hypocrisy in the church is a relatively new invention, nope, that has been there from the very beginning. This particular church in Corinth, oh my goodness, these people were getting drunk during communion on real wine. These people were excluding each other and playing favorites, and they were elevating certain spiritual gifts. I mean, they were totally a mess. They were dividing themselves over their favorite teachers. I mean, it was crazy. And in this one particular instance, they were putting up with somebody who was grossly, repetitively, and unrepentantly sexually immoral in their community. Now, this, is, this text is going to raise a bunch of questions we don't have time to answer. Because Paul ultimately says, if this person is not repentant, you have to kick them out of the community to restore them. So that's a whole other teaching we'll do some other time. But he says something here that I want to draw your attention to. So, First uh, Corinthians chapter 5 We'll go right to verse 12. So he talks about this. Hey guys. He talks about this kind of, uh, this issue going on in the church. That they're proud. That they're so gracious. They're putting up with all of this. And then notice what he says here. He says, verse 12. What business is it of mine to crino those outside the what? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, I don't know. I'm not a huge Bible interpreter, but it seems like it's saying, I mean, it just seems, and it seems congruent with what Peter was saying, that the good kind of judgment is supposed to be done in the church, not for those outside the church. Does that, does that seem like that's what it's saying to you? Does it also seem like modern Christianity has totally reversed that? So that we have entire cottage industries reminding us about how evil those people are out here. 
out there. And in here, hey man, we're all under grace. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And while that's true, Paul's concern wasn't judging everything that was going on out there. It was saying, if you fall into the community and you carry the name of this Jesus, then let's expect Christians to act like Christians and let's expect non-Christians to act like non-Christians. How about that? How about we give up being the moral police of the world and trying to force people into covenant relationship who don't have covenant relationship with God. Let's take care of our own house. We've lost the moral authority to speak on so many social issues because it's precisely because we've not taken care of what it means to follow Jesus here. The best witness on moral issues is a clean house and a family of God. That's the point. So the question of, hey, do we go around judging? Well, yes and no. If, if you're talking about the condemning judgment that's just so easy, separating people, making myself be puffed up because, man, I'm not like that screwed up person over there. No, no. We repent of that. We don't do that. The only judgment we're allowed to give, the only verdict you're allowed to give to somebody you don't know is that they are of unsurpassable worth because while they were sinners, Jesus died for them. That's it. That's all you got. In the church, however, There is this teaching that we are to sift and sort, not people, but behaviors, actions, ways of living. And so Paul simply says, listen, in the midst of talking about sexual morality in the community, he says, I'm not going to judge those outside. We judge those inside. Which, by the way is totally reverse, reversing what is our normal inclination, right? Because as long as you're judging the people out there, no one's judging me, correct? So judgment begins with God's family. So who is the object of this good kind of discernment? Followers of Jesus are. Now, that doesn't mean we can't say, you know, murder is wrong. Total, yes, I don't have to know murder to know that it's wrong. I mean, absolutely. But so much energy in modern expressions of Christianity is given against those people out there. What if we harnessed all of that towards holiness in the church? Not because we're trying to earn God's favor, but precisely because we've already got it. Not because we're seeking God's blessing, but it's because we've got it. Not to be a part of his family, but because we already are. So I'm just totally convinced that if you get a group of people, and this was the point from last week. If you were in the worship center last week, this was, I hope you came away with this. Paul says this amazing thing uh, in 1 Timothy. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, I don't think of Paul as the chief of sinners. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. And in fact, when Paul was speaking to Jewish Christians who thought they were all that awesome in keeping their Judaism alive, he would say things like, hey, by the way, I'm a Jew of Jews. I mean, I was born in the tribe of uh, Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. Right? I mean, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, baby. In regards to the 613 commandments, faultless. But then he meets Jesus And he says, I consider all that rubbish. And now he identifies himself as being the chief of sinners. And so the point last week was, what would happen if an entire community, each and every one of whom was convinced they were the worst sinner in the room? Right? Because I don't know your motives. I don't don't know what's going on inside of you. I don't know your inner thoughts, but I know mine. 
Because evidently, the closer you get to Jesus, the more aware you are of all the ways you fall short, right? So, what would happen if a group of people who were each individually convinced they were the worst sinner in the room got together and tried to help each other live a holy way? Would that look a bit different than we do? I think it actually would. See, I, I grew up hearing all about accountability groups. And, and for so many people, those are great, great things. Accountability groups, I'm going to hold somebody accountable to something. And that is absolutely a part of the life of faith. But there was a sense in which, oh, how shall I say this? There was a sense in which, if we weren't careful, it just became a behavior thing, not an inner sort of transforming thing. And you could hide even in accountability. And so what I think God is after is something deeper than simply what Dallas Willard would call sin management. He's interested in a holy community that's holy from the inside and not just how they look. Flip over, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Now, if the church is the community, is the object of this good kind of crino, this good kind of discernment, Notice the context in which this kind of discernment is to be practiced. All right, Acts chapter 2. Very familiar passage. Let's go to verse 46. You guys hanging in there? Making sense so far? Yeah, okay. The first yes was a lot stronger. Yes, we're hanging in there. No, it's not really making sense. Verse 46. That's how I read that whole interaction. Now, this is speaking of the, the earliest followers of Jesus after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Every day, so it seems like it's saying every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now, the temple courts, that was a big, big meeting space. So we're assuming these were larger gatherings. So they would meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their, what? Homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The primary unit of followership in the first century wasn't the big meetings in the temple courts. It was the number of people that you could fit in a home. So most of the New Testament letters are written to churches that met in homes. And if these churches met in homes that were of kind of typical size, at max you could fit 20 to 30 people. Which means then that all the conversation about helping each other discern assumes that you are in daily sort of covenant relationship with a smaller group of people, and this isn't practiced when 6,000 people are all hanging out together. right? I don't, so people email, email me all the time with discernment about me. All right, so, so sometimes the discernment is, is clothing-related, sometimes the discernment is others-related. It's very interesting. Whenever somebody says something, I always try, in my best moments, to say, okay, God, is there any truth to this? And if there is, I'll hear it, no question, because I want ears to hear. But the kind of discernment that I most listen to comes from the people that are in and close. Right? I mean, one of our, he was here last service, John Lundy, his wife, it's over there, um, is an example. He was on our search committee. He's one of our elders. There have been a couple of times when John has said, hey, Mike, I'm kind of concerned about this. He's done it humbly, gently, 
And do I hear that differently than just a random email from somebody I don't know? Absolutely. See, this discernment, you can't practice it in front of 6,000 people. You just can't do it. So many of these conversations assume a context of 20 to 30 people who are hanging out almost every day. You're on the inside of their life. So yes, in the church, we're to discern, crino, we're to sift and sort. But even in the church, there's an assumption about the fact that we're meeting in smaller units, right? And we call them small groups, or they're called adult fellowships here, whatever. But the idea is, you're, you're actually, this, this isn't the best expression of church, right? This is just an event in a big box, right? You are church, by the way, and the best unit of you is a community that's smaller so that you can get on the inside of each other's lives. There, teachings like Matthew 18 make sense. When, when Jesus says, listen, if somebody sins against you, go talk to them. If they don't listen, bring someone with them. Bring someone with you to talk to them again. And if they don't listen, then tell it to the church. Well, that's not getting up in front of 6,000 people saying, hey, Joe, over here, he's a sinner. Right? That's with 20 people saying, man, we're really struggling with this issue here. Do you see the difference? So the assumption is, we are the objects of the good crino. We, as the worst sinners in the room, are to do this with each other in smaller units. Are you with me so far? One last thing. How should it be done? Go to Galatians chapter 6. See, I just think this is so practical. Galatians chapter 6. I want to be the kind of person that invites this kind of conversation. My wife and I, uh, we, have, um, we, we ask it at least every year on our anniversary, but I try to ask it a little more than that. But I, I ask the question, hey, what can I do to be a better husband to you? Now, the amount of time she's had nothing to say has been zero, right? She's always got suggestions, all right, I've asked my children, how can I be... The scriptures say, fathers, don't exasperate your children. My children don't know what that word means, but they certainly know when I'm doing it. And so, so I asked them, how can I be a better daddy to you? Now, I had thought I was just doing that to be a good role model. I didn't think they'd have real opinions uh, about those sorts of things. And so... They've had opinions over, hey, dad, do you really, do you and mommy really have to like raise your voices when you're upset at each other? And do you, you know, I, the, the one that was, I mean, that one was, was tough. The, the other one that was tough was when Big Nate said, I, I really don't like it when you take naps on Saturdays because that's one of my only days to be with you. Huh? That's when it stopped. Absolutely. But who took a nap yesterday on Saturday? <laughs> wifey, wifey. Now, who gets a nap today? I do. Now, but that's a different. Shush. Shush. So, I, the elders review me. I have I have guys that speak into my life. I have somebody that that gets every website I go visit. I mean, I, I don't do it because. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that that is bad. I think that's freeing. I, I, if I am the worst sinner in the room, I need help. I believe I have blind spots. And to, to live like somebody that has blind spots, you're constantly asking people, what's it like to sit opposite of me? What's it like to be my husband or to be my wife? What's it like to be a boyfriend or girlfriend or roommate or whatever? 
See, and in a small environment with, people, with other people that are convinced they're the worst sinner in the room, do you see how beautiful that can be? It gets easily abused, and that's why we kind of run from it. But there is a sense in which the New Testament assumes that the operating unit are these small groups of people who are on the inside of each other's life enough that they could point out blind spots. Now, when they do, notice Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Notice this. Notice, first of all, the family language. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should what? Restore. So not punish, right? Should restore that person. And then what's it say? Gently. Now, why is it gently? Well, okay, let's say I see pride in you. What's your name? Troy. Troy. So let's say I see pride in you, Troy. Jesus' teaching is that the only reason I can see the speck of sawdust in your eye is because I have a two-by-four in mine. In other words, the things that often most upset us about other people are the things we're guilty of ourselves. Would you agree? And so, if I'm the worst sinner in the room, I'm to see my pride as the worst thing and his pride as much smaller. If somebody lives in that Assumption, I would approach Troy vastly differently than I would if I felt superior. Would you agree? So, so often the discernment we do is kind of reinforcing our superiority over other people that are messed up or they're screwed up or they're still in process or whatever. But if I actually believe that my sin is a plank and your sin is a speck, how am I going to be with you? Well, the word for that is gentle. Right? That doesn't mean we... Don't say anything. No, 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 we're to speak the truth in love. But what's love look like? Love looks like, hey, the only reason I can notice it in Troy is because I'm guilty of it myself. And in fact, my guilt of it is way worse than his guilt. Now, if somebody approaches you like that, see, I believe you'd hear it. So we want to be people. This is, see, this idea that we're webbed together like this, that you have some people in your life who without fear of consequence can speak truth to you. If you don't have that, you have to ask why. What are you protecting? Or do you come across as somebody that's just like, nope, not interested? But central to followership is the idea that we're helping each other sift and sort. And we're doing it not from positions of superiority, but from positions of, I got a plank and you got a speck right? Now that's, that's when we're talking. It's when John or when Justy or when my kids say, yeah, I'd really like you to look at, and it may hurt and it may sting, but it always has the ring of truth. See, a community that starts doing that stuff is going to look a lot different in terms of its judgment about other things. Would you agree? Because what God, I think, wants to do... See, I got into a huge argument with my friends once about whether or not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is in the Bible. And I'm a huge fan of America. Can I just say that? And two American virtues are individualism and tolerance. Individualism means that nobody has the right to tell me how to define life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And tolerance means as long as I'm not hurting anybody, you have to put up with how I choose to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Would you agree? Now, 
as cultural values go, I'm so glad we are under those than some dictatorial cultural values elsewhere. But even though they're great as far as cultures go, they are antithetical to life in the kingdom of God. It is to become a follower of Jesus is precisely found at that moment you forsake your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When you are yoked to Jesus, when you become somebody that is willing to abandon the right to privacy, whatever that means, and the right to happiness, whatever that means. See, what you can't do if you're going to be a follower of Jesus is claim your status as an individual and protect that at all costs. Because what Jesus is exactly trying to do in you is to yoke you together into a family. And part of what that family's job is, if it's healthy, is in love, deep humility, and with gentleness to come alongside and show blind spots. If it's done well, it's beautiful. It gets so easily abused under the guise of legalism. or I mean, we've all had experiences where it's ugly. But that still doesn't diminish the invitation, which is to be the kind of person that isn't a right claimer, but somebody who's laying down their rights. So I don't have a, a right to privacy. I don't have a right to individual pursuit of happiness. The, the greatest... I'm not just sitting around thinking, okay, well, as long as I'm not harming anybody. The, the conversation's bigger than that now. What, what, if I carry the name of God, what brings him glory? What would he want? I mean, and I know for some of us we know this, but there is another sense that when you even talk about discernment in the body, there's still the sense of, well, I know, but who are you? You don't have any right to tell me what to do. And certainly when I hear stuff I don't want to hear, that's where I go. Who are you? It's not like you're an authority over me, but there's this other sense of, well, we belong to each other. And that is such a foreign way for Americans to think. The thing I want you to come out of here with most is what would it look like to have a community of people, each convinced they were the worst sinner in the community, invited in in smaller groups to help each other focus not on the worldliness of whatever the world is, but on the holiness of the group. What would, I think that is what the world is looking for from us. We don't need more pickets. We don't need more protests. We really don't. Let's, what would it be like if we took all that energy and we said, okay, what would it look like for us to be holy and help each other along the way? So close your eyes for a moment, if you would. One, one question I would have. Have you welcomed this kind of, of conversation about you. In other words, are you the kind of person that seeks out or would receive the gentle, humble conversation that would go with this kind of discernment? Are you the kind of person that wants to know what blind spots, what areas of hurt, frustration, or whatever that you cause? Perhaps maybe we simply begin this morning, God, remind me that I'm the worst sinner in the room. And for others of us, are you in relationships with with people that would even allow this kind of conversation to take place? Are you with folks where you're seeing them regularly enough they can get on the inside of life? 
Have you opened yourself up to the rest of the family of God to help you along in what it means to follow Jesus? And so, Father, as the worst sinner in the room, my name is Mike. I pray, God, for the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus to be manifest and spoken into me, not only by the power of the Spirit, but by the community. And Father, we humbly are reminded of the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus. We no longer stand under condemnation. God, we thank you for that. And yet, Lord, we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so give us grace. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us that we might look more and more like Jesus. Jesus. 